Good to be with you all this morning. I do have a bit of a scratchy throat. <clears throat> Always hits at the worst time, but I trust we will get through this. So thanks for being with us. If you're a first-time guest in person or online, it's our uh, pleasure to be with you this morning. We're continuing our Exodus series. We've been going uh, systematically through the book of Exodus. It would be very hard to cover every single verse in the book of Exodus, so we're kind of going thematically through it. We're, we're at uh, Exodus 32 today. Just going through the whole chapter, uh, the chapter on the golden calf. <clears throat> so if you've uh, been following along uh, with us through this series, or if you just know the Exodus story, um, perhaps you're familiar with this. The people, at this point, they have been liberated from slavery. So God has formed this people, Israel. Of course, they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They have now been freed from that. God has brought them out uh, into the, the midst of the land. He's preparing to bring them into their inheritance, which is this fertile land that they'll be able to establish themselves in, uh, that, will be able to, uh, that they will be able to cultivate and just build a life in. So he's preparing them for that. <clears throat> As a newly freed people, um, they, they hit this major milestone in their lives. And, and we'll look at that milestone today, and it's not a good milestone. Uh, the golden calf that might just culturally um, bring certain images and associations to your mind. So it's, it's, uh, it's not easy to be, to be human. <laughs> there are some challenges to our very nature that are uh, on display in our passage today. Even if we find ourselves in the midst of the situation that we've longed for and desired for all of our lives, even throughout the generations, um, there's still something about the human condition uh, that is challenging to say the least. So <clears throat> we will explore what that looks like for us uh, in Exodus 32. <clears throat> Exodus 32 reads, When the people <clears throat> saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. <clears throat> And made a golden calf, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. <clears throat> and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. 
But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented (coughs) from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory. It is, not a, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. <clears throat> and as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. 
<clears throat> then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. <clears throat> so this is this is this is shocking. I don't I don't have another word for it but but shocking. Out came this calf. I mean there's there's it's just a shocking shocking display of everything that is wrong with with Israel right now. The people's attitude is exceptionally poor. They have just been witness to the greatest acts of compassion, the greatest acts of power, the greatest acts of commitment that God has shown to a people since the beginning of time. They've been provided for over and above their needs. They've been shown love. <laughs> They've been shown forgiveness. They've been shown everything that we believe a good God would, would show to a people and give to a people, but they're acting as if none of it matters. Uh, it's, it's hard to even get past the very first line, this, this up, make us gods. You know, everything that God just did, their response is up, make us gods who will go before us. The second that they had to be patient, the second that they had to exercise trust, they say up, make us gods. <clears throat> God had just liberated them from 400 years of Egyptian slavery for the purpose of making a people for him to possess personally that they might worship him in the midst of the earth. Uh, not only this, he, in doing so, he showed that actually there's no, there aren't other gods. There are not other gods. That was the whole point of his showing his great power over the natural world of Egypt. He, he used Egypt like a lump of clay. He did whatever he wanted to the whole natural world of Egypt in liberating his people. But now they have the audacity to say, up, make us gods. It, it didn't somehow register that there aren't, there aren't gods. There's just God. There's only God. But, but see, the Israelites are doing something that I think we do too. <clears throat> what I talk about human nature, <clears throat> I know that's a really debated topic today, but bear with me a bit. The Israelites are, are viewing their lives as a kind of blank canvas on which to project whatever they want. Is that so different from, from our time, just viewing ourselves as, as a blank canvas to just project the life we want onto that? This up, make us gods is a culturally situated statement, but it's human beings making that statement. Um, what this tells us is that while cultures differ, human nature really doesn't. Uh, the text, I believe, does reveal something about us. If, if the Bible, <coughs> including our passage, didn't reveal something about us, I wouldn't mess with the Bible. Uh, if it only revealed, uh, if it only gave us a glimpse into these ancient cultures and peoples, sure, maybe it might be interesting, um, but it wouldn't be alive. It wouldn't be alive, as I believe that the Bible is. So up, make us gods, is just the ancient version of what we in the modern West call expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. Our version of it is not up, make us gods, but our version of it tends to be more along the lines of get your morality out of my face. <laughs> get your version of the good life away from my version when it starts to encroach on the way I'm able to project my own self into the world. That, it's kind of the same thing going on. It's just this posture of self-determination self-determination, a belief that human nature is whatever we want it to be, and psychological well-being as we define it, 
as we define it, is the inviolable human right, is the distinct human right, psychological well-being as we define it. That's just projecting what we want out into the world. That's up, make us gods. Up, make us gods is just projecting the self into the world. The difference between the text, between ancient Israel and today, is that their world was fundamentally ordered around God or the gods. Okay, it was, a, it was a theistic world. Our world is just ordered around the self. Whether it's ordered around God or the gods or the self, there's still this projection of the self out into the world. So Israel's just projecting itself through the gods. They're projecting their personal well-being and uh, psychological um, well-being, their version of the good life through the gods. We just project it through the self directly. It's the same human nature. The culture is different, but the human nature is not different. <clears throat> now, of course, in the modern West, we don't have a pantheon of the gods, right? We, we have several dominant monotheistic religions, of which Christianity is the dominant monotheistic religions. To a lesser degree, we do have polytheism. We have various New Age practices um, that would constitute what is effectively a polytheistic worldview, but strict atheism is only about 3% of the American population. The vast majority of the American population does believe in some deity. Okay, 70%, according to Pew Research, 70% of Americans would say that they are Christian, so they, they would pro profess belief in the Christian God. 22% are the, are the famous uh, religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not nuns, but N-O-N-E-S, the, the unaffiliated, the, the famous religious nuns. So most, you know, most Americans would say they profess belief. This, this hard materialistic worldview, you know, strict atheism is not common. But the, the more important question is what kind of belief? What, what kind of belief? That's the fundamental question. 70% Christian, that actually doesn't tell me much. It tells me that, yeah, a lot of people are open to some transcendent deity, but it doesn't tell me really anything beyond that. Um, so the National Study of Youth and Religion from the early 2000s tried to get to the bottom of this question. You know, what, what does your belief actually say? What do you mean, what do you believe in when you say you believe in God? Well, this study um, from the early 2000s found five basic things among uh, several thousand uh, responders. Uh, overwhelmingly, they tended to say these five basic things. Number one, people tend to believe that a God exists. By the way, the, many of these people are Christian who are saying this. Number one, a God exists who created the world and sometimes intervenes in its affairs. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible in most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. <clears throat> Number four, God does not really need to be involved in one's life except when there are problems or to help one achieve their goals. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, sociologists have summarized these findings with the term moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Maybe you've heard of this phrase. 
you know what morals are, you know, being a good person, you know what therapeutic kind of means, you know, just the inner psychology of feeling good, being happy, and deism is the belief that God exists, but he created the world to sort of run on its own, doesn't really intervene in a, in a meaningful way. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Um, maybe those five points really resonate, you know, maybe that just sounds like, yeah, that, that sounds like basically the way that I approach life, and, you know, if, if you press me, I, I would say, you know, there's a lot of hard stuff in the Bible, but I think that's the, you know, basic teaching of the Bible. <clears throat> Moralistic therapeutic deism um, is what I would say, I would go so far as to say it really still is the dominant religion in the United States. I do believe that even among most many, I don't want to start making claims I can't prove, <coughs> I think many professing Christians, that's probably their version of what Christianity is. It's this moralistic therapeutic deism. I think, I think that's the dominant religion in our country and in our culture. Being a good person and being happy is what it's really all about. God will intervene if and when he needs to. If I need his help, I'll, I'll ask for it. And if you're a good person, you go to heaven when you die. I mean, being a good person and being happy is, is fundamentally the message of the Bible and all world religions. <clears throat> you know, maybe many of us would would resonate with that, and probably a lot of us do. Again, I, I think it's the dominant religion in the United States. It seems on the face of it simple, right? Being a good person, being happy, even seems kind of a solid way to build a life. Who, who would argue with that? You know, who would deny someone the right to be a good person and be happy? Who, who would say that that's fundamentally a, uh, an antisocial way to, to exist in our culture? Who, you know, who in the room is, is really not finding that to be a, a, a good way to approach life? It's just simple and solid. Well, what if it ended up not being quite as simple or as solid as we thought when you really press it, when you really explore the implications of it? What happens when, when your definition of what it means to be a good person conflicts with my definition of what it means to be a good person? What if your pursuit of happiness is not compatible with my pursuit of happiness and we live in the same country, the same city, the same street, we go to the same schools, we interact in the same social network? You know, what happens when our views just are not compatible in any meaningful way, even to the point of being uh, fundamentally harmful to each other? You know, in a culture of expressive individualism, when, the set, when we just project ourselves into the world and uh, view life as this blank canvas on which to order the gods to our desire. You know, we're going we're gonna to butt heads. Um, the world we want is going to conflict with the world somebody else wants. So who, you know, how do we, how do we balance that? <clears throat> um, you might say, well, you know, so what? That, that's the challenge of being alive today. That, that's the whole point of what the public sphere does. That's the whole point of living in a democracy. That's why we have government. Uh, that, that's, why, that's why, you know, we are um, sort of obligated to try to be a good citizen, whatever that looks like. You know, th that's why people have to sort of live together and, and work that out. And yes, we will butt heads. And it won't be perfect, but that's the best we can do because we're all going to pursue these different versions of what we think the good life is. And actually, I agree with that. I agree that the, the public sphere, working that out in the democracy in which we live, I believe that's really in this fallen world and the state we're in probably the best way to try to work these things out, at least 
according, you know, at least compared to the alternative, which is totalitarianism, which is a strict and brutal dictatorship that imposes its will, you know, for what the good life is. Uh, I prefer the former to the latter, just to say. <clears throat> the problem is that that worldview, even if, even if we can agree that, that there's probably a, you know, maybe a best way to work out our different uh, worldviews and understandings of what the good life is, even if there's a best way to go about it, it still doesn't address what is a bigger problem. It still doesn't do anything about the gods. It still doesn't handle the up, make us gods. It does nothing. It doesn't touch that. It doesn't touch the gods or the idols of the culture in which we live. There are gods. There is no culture that doesn't have gods. There are no... (laughs) There is no culture that doesn't have something around which human beings strive to order their lives around, whether it's the gods or whether it's just a projection of what our innermost desires are. That's the gods. The things that motivate human psychology and driving, the things that motivate human psychology and drive human behavior are no different whether it's ancient Israel or today. They were motivated to order their lives around the gods. We're motivated to order our lives around what we think will make us happy and what we think uh, is, you know, will make us good people in the society in which we live. The only difference is they call them gods, and we call them, you, you know the things we call them. We call them achievements, whether it's career or social. We call them experiences, whether it's sexual or adventure or otherwise. We call them possessions, including the latest technology. Uh, we call them being aligned with the good people in our culture. We, we call it being on the right side of history. We call it the tribalism that's, that's just saturated in our society right now. We call it um, attaining the affirmation of the influencers in our social sphere or the social sphere we want to be a part of. We call it striving to be an influencer. We call it the um, pursuit of fame. We call it the, the pursuit of being happy. <laughs> we call it the pursuit of being a good person and being seen to be a good person. That's what we call the gods. That's what we call the gods of our culture are. So ordering, you know, a democracy doesn't touch that. You need something that goes deeper than a democracy. You, you need something that goes deeper than just the right um, way to order society, including the best form of government. Israel said, up, make us gods. Because as human beings, we were created to worship something. We project the self and order our li- lives around the projection of that self because as human beings, we were created to worship something. That's why I would dare to make these claims that there is such a thing as a human nature. Yeah, different cultures exist, different <laughs> lived experiences exist, but I would dare to say that a human nature exists because I believe that a God created us to worship him. That's why what Israel is doing in this up, make us gods is no different than the human, than the modern Western person's projection of the self out into the world and that person's attempt to order their lives around that projection, even increasingly to coerce others to, to order their lives around that projection as well. It's because we were created to worship. The now deceased agnostic author, David Foster Wallace, Uh, famously said in a commencement speech that there is actually no such thing as not worshiping. He's an agnostic saying this. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. 
the only choice we get is what to worship. The only choice we get is, is what to worship. Our passage shows us what happens when we worship the gods or the idols of our culture rather than the God who created human culture. In the Psalms, it says of, of these idols, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. All right, our, our lives conform to the thing we worship. And wouldn't you expect that to be the case if you devote your life to something? If, if your life is fundamentally ordered around something, don't you expect that you would kind of conform to that in some way, that that would shape your identity more than anything else would? The more we devote ourselves to something, the more we become like that thing. If I worship fame, if I just want the, fame, the affirmation of the influencers or to be an influencer, if, I, if fame is my overriding objective, I'm going to be as shallow as that sounds. That's just a shallow way to live life. And it'll be evident, <laughs> it'll be evident in my life. Those who worship sex or the feelings of affirmation that come with it will be consumed by it. Okay, follow the finances, follow the browsing history, follow the time spent, follow the obsession with the body. David Foster Wallace goes on to say of this, that if you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you into the ground. If you worship money and things, you will never have enough. And inevitably, we will make sacrifices to the thing that we worship. We will make sacrifices to the thing that we worship because the gods require sacrifice. The gods require sacrifice. Again, wouldn't you expect that to be the case? If you're ordering your life around something, you sort of conform to that thing, and you also have to sacrifice for that thing. After all, you're devoting everything to that thing. You're devoting your time, your money. You're, you're um, pursuing that thing at the expense of other things. They're, they're just sacrifice comes with worship. Now, Israel is sacrificing for this, this golden calf. They're sacrificing their gold. By the way, they don't have money to give away. This is a newly liberated nomadic people. They, they don't have money to give away, but they're sacrificing their gold. More importantly, they're sacrificing their relationship with God. That's the more important thing. Uh, the God who freed them, the God who loved them, the God who gave himself to them in covenant relationship and provided everything for them in order that they might be his cherished possession in the midst of the nations of the earth. They sacrificed this, even this. They, they held God up to contempt. They treated him as a non-entity. They broke the covenant that they entered into with him. And Moses smashing the tablets of the law symbolizes this in dramatic fashion. We sacrifice to the gods whatever they are. And again, if devoting our lives to something causes us to become like them, well, it's going to cause us to sacrifice potentially even our loved ones in the service of, of that idol. What does our spending reveal? What do our relationships or lack thereof reveal? What does our time spent reveal? You see, none, none of this is new. This up, make us gods is just a product of the human heart. You can be an ancient Israelite or a modern Westerner. Human nature is going to sacrifice to some god, to some idol, to something outside of itself that it is pursuing because it finds 
meaning and purpose and value and beauty and affirmation in that thing, whatever it is. So this up make us gods showed that, yeah, their, their, their nature is just, it's just disordered. Okay, what, what God just brought them through didn't fix the nature of the human heart. Aaron, as their second-in-command leader, showed his corruption. All right, their leadership is corrupt. Therefore, the whole people is, is going to be corrupt. Human nature has not changed. But more importantly than that, God has not changed. Human nature might be the same, but so is God. God never ceases to be God, and God is both holy and gracious. He is holy and He is gracious. So He deals with their idolatry just according to who He is, as a holy and gracious God, a God who is unchanging in His holy graciousness. So His holiness makes idolatry dangerous. The worship of false gods cannot ultimately coexist with the one true God who is holy. It just it doesn't compute. It doesn't work. It, it's not real. So their idolatry almost ends up in their non-existence. See, because idolatry is depersonalizing. It's dehumanizing. Worshiping the gods conforms us to those gods. Therefore, it conforms us to something that isn't us. It takes us out of ourselves in a bad way. Uh, it's dehumanizing. The horrible deception in idolatry is that in the pursuit of the gods, the idols, the pursuit of what we're ordering our worship around, in doing so, we think we're becoming our truest selves. We think, no, this is really me. This is what my heart truly desires. This is who I fundamentally am. The lie is that it makes us less of ourselves. In striving to be our truest self, we become less of ourselves. Idolatry is dehumanizing. We're, we're enslaved to it and we don't even know it because other people in our culture are too and it seems normal and even desirable. <laughs> it's just the air we breathe. Of why wouldn't we want what everyone else has? This up make us gods is just Israel's version of that. The, na- the nations around them had the gods. Up make us gods is this cry to be like the people, to be like the culture. <laughs> this up make us gods is just conformity to the nations. It's conformity to culture. They might have wanted the gods, but what they sacrificed was their relationship with the only God who exists, God, God. There's one God, Yahweh, of the, of the Bible, of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. Do we have gods or God? Is our life ordered around the gods or God? Do we want what the culture is offering, or do we see something much more desirable in the God who gave us life to begin with, a life that even has the ability to desire something? That's from God, the only God who is able to give life and sustain life and redeem life. You see, God is holy, but he's also gracious. Though the Israelites were unfaithful to him, he was faithful to them. He was faithful to them. The intercession of Moses itself was a gift of God's grace. God works through his creation. He works through people just like you and me. He works through human beings. It's a privilege for the human race that God works through human beings. It is a privilege for human beings that God chooses to work through human beings. God chooses to work through Moses to make atonement for his people who are sinful. 
Moses asks God to forgive their sin, and in doing so, Moses makes a big sacrifice, the biggest sacrifice. He says, God, forgive their sin, but if someone else needs to die for their sin, let it be me. All right, blot me out of your book. If someone else needs to die, let it be me. God, forgive their sin. He pleads for Israel's forgiveness at the cost of his own exclusion. That's a big that's the biggest sacrifice. Now remember God works through people and it is a privilege that he does so. And he works through Moses to show humanity to show us for all time anyone who would pick up this book past present and future whoever would pick up the bible God works through Moses to show his nature what he's really like who he really is. He's better than we think. He's better than we think. God is better than we imagine him to be. God could never be a projection of the human self because he's better. He's better than that. The human mind can't conceive of God. He's better. He's better than the human mind is capable of thinking. Remember, human nature is such that we will worship something. There's, there's no choice. We, we're, we're made to worship. We will worship something. When we worship the gods of the culture, the idols of the culture, we do it to our own harm. We do it to the harm of others as well. But God is holy and gracious and unchanging. That doesn't happen in a vacuum. <laughs> and through Moses, God shows us that ultimately he will restore our fallen nature by sacrificing himself, by sacrificing his very self in order to include us into fellowship with him. Moses just shows us imperfectly and temporarily what Jesus will accomplish perfectly and finally. Moses just shows us in a weak way what Jesus will do in a strong way. We have broken fellowship with God by worshiping the idol, idols of our culture, but Jesus has made a way for us to know the unfailing love of God forever. Remember, God is faithful. He's unchangingly faithful. He's unchangingly holy, unchangingly gracious yesterday and today and forever. God in Jesus lived a perfect life in obedience to the Father and yet died the death that fallen humanity deserves, the agonizing exclusion from the presence of the Father. Life is about being included in the, in the community of God, in the presence of God. Christ made it possible for us to worship God, which means that we have the opportunity to conform to the image of God. Remember, we conform to the image of what we worship. Conforming to the image of God is the most humanizing and personalizing act we could ever involve ourselves in. The worship of God is humanizing. The worship of an idol is dehumanizing. Because what it means to be human is to be conformed to the image of God. Because we were made in the image of God. To worship God is therefore to be the most human we can be. To worship God is therefore to be the most myself I can be. I cannot be more of myself than when I'm worshiping God because God created me to worship him. That's the most humanizing act a human being can engage in. And the most dehumanizing act is the worship of a false God, a God that doesn't exist, that makes us less of ourselves, though it promises to make us more of ourselves. The band can come back up as I uh, just close out here. <clears throat> I want to be myself more and more. I don't want to be less of myself. I want to be more of myself. 
more of the man that God created me to be. What do you want? What do you want for yourselves? Do you want to be the person that God created you to be? Do you want more and more your truest self to be who you feel that you are? Do you, do you want your true self to be what you project out into the world? Not some avatar that uh, is, is conformed to this fleeting culture in which we live. Do you want to be yourself? Do you want to be who God made you to be truly in the truest sense? Worship him. Worship him. Worship the true and living God of the Bible. Ask Jesus to forgive your sins. Lay a hold of the forgiveness that he does offer. Trust in the sacrifice of his perfect life for your imperfect life. Trust in the record of his perfect life, the penalty of the death that he suffered in place of what you do deserve, what we deserve as fallen humans. Trust in the record of Jesus, the life and death of the only perfect human who has ever lived, the truly perfect image of what it means to be human. Let his life count for yours. God, I, I pray that whoever needs to hear this would hear it. I, I pray you would open our hearts, God, to, to receive the truth of this text, to receive the truth of this chapter on the golden calf, that we might order our lives around you, that we might order our worship around you, that we might see the false idols for what they are, that we would strive to be more human in a culture that is very dehumanizing. God, let us strive to be more fully human. Pray that we would know you, Jesus, that you would convict us, you would encourage us, you would draw us closer to yourself, to the glory of the Father. Amen.